Okay, so it's really noisy where I am, but I'm going to record this anyway and hopefully um, it's still clear enough to listen to. So um, what's, let's see if I can just turn this up a little bit, turn up the noise here. Okay, so um, years ago I um, learned about neural pathways and how they work and basically how they work is they... Um, your brain runs on stories and your brain makes connections and those connections then are given meaning by association, which uh, how that looks in practicality, in practical terms, is that um, if you watch a movie like Deliverance or Jaws and you're in a situation that's the same, so in a boat in the same sort of weather or the same sort of boat, um, it will be similar enough in your body that you could be triggered and start to panic that Jaws is going to come and get you. Even if you know that's crazy and illogical and doesn't make sense, you can still have the same fears because it's connected enough in your brain that you'll have um, your neural pathways have, have made this connection and there's a physical reason, uh, there's a physical response to the story in your brain. Uh, ditto, I had this friend years ago uh, called Seth, um, Matthew, and um, anyway, Matt said his dad took them for this trip into the wilderness in America, and right before the trip, dad uh, got them to watch the movie Deliverance, and um, then they went to the same place where Deliverance was filmed, and he was freaking out the whole time, and he said, look, logically, I know it's a movie, but still, it's it's still in my head, right? This crazy terror is still in my head, and my dad's just messing with me. And dad thinks it's funny, but um, I, you know, he said as a fourteen-year-old, I was really traumatized by this. So, um, if we know that that's how it works against us, we can actually use this trick for us to help us heal trauma when we start to make new connections in the brain as to what things mean. Uh, so an example I often tell friends is um, is that stories are actually real to us and have real emotions with them, even if they're not actually true, even if it's just the way we remember it or the way it was told to us. So um, one example of this is that when we were little kids, when we were about seven or eight, my dad was filling up the pool at the start of summer and my brother was in a really foul mood because he was hot and he was tired and he was complaining a lot about being hot and it was taking too long to fill the pool. It was a big pool, you know, like in the hose. And Dad, I think, got three hoses in from different parts of the garden to try and fill it up. But it wasn't happening fast enough. So my brother was throwing a tantrum. And so Dad just splashed him, got the hose and flicked the hose on him to cool him down, thinking he was solving a problem. And my brother flew into a screaming rage and started and ran inside, got my mother. Um, my mother said, well, you know he's doing it because he hates you and um, and then screamed at my father. So that I'd forgotten all about. I remembered it at the time because I was just dumbfounded by how that all played out because it just seemed weird. Um, but, you know, it wasn't it – was, it was just another typical example of um, – of that sort of, that was a very typical way of, of all of those people in that situation. Um, that's how they respond to life. 
My brother creates drama and then plays the victim. My mother turn, um, alienates and turns everyone against each other. My dad tries to solve a problem. My dad tries to keep everyone happy and I'm sitting on the sidelines. Uh, and then I got abused for laughing. So the, that's, that's also typical of my childhood. But anyway, that was that, that, um, that scene was pretty locked in because it was, um, it was a, a good indicator of uh, how my childhood played out. However, it didn't really matter. It was just like, oh, yep, that's what they're like. That's what they do. About five years ago, my brother came to me and he said, uh, you know what, Dad's always hated me. I can prove he always hated me because when I was little, he splashed me at the pool and that proves that he hates me. And I'm like, don't be ridiculous, right? That's just crazy. He splashed you because you were, you were complaining you were hot, right? It's just, it doesn't mean he hates you. Now, does it mean my dad hates my brother? No. Does my dad ha- actually hate my brother? Who knows? Um, does my brother believe that this crazy story is true? Absolutely. Has my brother then gone looking for other evidence to support this theory that dad hates him? Yes. So when my brother cites evidence for his belief, he gives examples of my mother telling him how much my father hates him. And he tells it as true. He doesn't see that that's, uh, he doesn't see that it's coming from uh, an agenda or behavior or it's coming secondhand or it's an alienating behavior of an abuser. My brother just sees, um, dad hates me. Dad's always hated me. This is proof. What my mother says is proof. My mother telling me he hates me is proof, right? So, um, but for him, it feels real, and for him, it creates trauma, and for him, it creates an enemy and an agenda and a victim and a whole uh, trauma, and that's created issues with him around male uh, authority figures. His whole life has been run based on lies told by my mother because she hates my father and she wants to cause trouble and mayhem. So it's really fucking sad. It's really fucking sad that my dad, my brother's whole identity and belief system has been based on a lie and it's run so much of his life because he hasn't questioned it. And it's still running his life because he uses these, these scenarios as proof that my father hates him. And then in order to do that, he has to ignore the reality of my father being kind to him and all of the times that my father has been there for him, picked up after him, helped him, taken care of him financially, provided for him. He has to ignore all the proof of the reality that my father doesn't hate him and that my father cares. Um, And yet, so it's a thing called a reticular activating system and you learn about it in marketing at uni uh, where if you buy a red Volvo not that you would, but if you bought a red Volvo, you'll see 50 other red Volvos on the road and before that you didn't know they existed, right? So it's um, you notice what's in your frame of reference in your brain and you go looking for that. And so most people, if they have a belief, they'll go looking for it. And if it's not our belief, we'll, we'll see it play out and we'll think the other person's crazy. Be like somebody who goes, all men cheat. Now, that's not an absolute truth, but it's their version of reality and it's probably their father cheated on their mother or they had a one or two boyfriends who cheated on them and they've turned it into an absolute. All men cheat, right? So what happens is 
they'll date someone and they'll be on their first or second date and they'll start with this story, all men cheat, all men cheat, all men cheat. Now, a guy who doesn't cheat will think, a guy who's a good guy will think, oh, my God, this girl is just, she's going to think I cheated, she's going to scream at me, she's going to accuse me of cheating, Um, she's never going to trust me, even if I never do anything wrong, this is going to be drama. So, a girl who's got all men cheat as her absolute story, as an absolute truth story that she's running, the only man, any man with healthy boundaries is going to run a mile. Any man with healthy relationship um, dynamics is going to run a mile. The only man who'll stick around is the rescuer who wants to prove to her that he's the good guy, which is actually kind of what she's asking for. Um, But she'll push him away because she needs to see herself as the victim of these men who cheat. Um, and she won't, she's in blame and she's in anger and she's in creating the problem and she's seeing herself as the victim of the situation she created. So she's most likely to end up with the guy who cheats. She's also even more likely to believe that the guy cheated on her, whether or not she did, he did. Because that's her story and she's not interested in reality. So for someone who's outside of of a person playing this game, we can look at it and go, it's crazy, right? They can't see the truth. They can't see the obvious. They just want to see, you know, they just want to look for proof, right? But yet we all do this in some version. We all do this. Whenever we see a friend making the same mistake over and over and over, um, and we turn it into a joke. Um, one of my mates posted a meme the other day and it was like, oh, yeah. So um, I think the meme was something like, how am I still single when all my friends are on to their fifth love of the life, love of a lifetime soulmate and it's only April, right? Something like that. So um, this is the thing that we joke about people who do this compulsive behaviour based on these erroneous beliefs. Um, but... We all, you know, like, why do we do it? Because that's how our brains are wired. Our brains have made connections uh, that aren't true. So Breen, um, no, is it Breen Brown, I think, talks about this. I don't know who work well enough, but apparently she talks about this. The work of Byron Katie. So thework.com, Byron Katie talks a lot about this, that how we have a story. There's the truth and then there's a story. Um, I actually studied this at university, and especially when it comes to witnesses in a crime, there'll be five different versions of what happened, and then there's the video footage, which is uh, another version of what happened depending on the camera angle. But the five witnesses will all see uh, whatever they they project onto reality. So one of them will go, oh, that person was driving too fast, you know fast drivers are dangerous, right? So they're telling you their version of reality through their filter. So uh, how can we use this for something positive other than uh, repeating all the same old crap over and over again? How can we use this, um, you know, to help us heal and not just to repeat old dramas and old patterns? Well, we can do this when we start to see other examples. So um, Tony Robbins, NLP, people like Tad James, Byron Katie, um, Family Constellations people um, in kinesiology and a whole lot of other um, 
modalities now use when you start to say, I, I think Tony Robbins calls it fly on the wall, or that might be the NLP, which Tony Robbins also does, NLP name for it, which is fly on the wall, which is when you stand back and you look at a situation. So first you say what your story of it is, and then you stand back and you look at it as an observer, as an impartial observer, and you look at the scenario. And there used to be a chair technique uh, that I learned, oh God, back in about 2000, where you got uh, different people to play, like you got someone to sit in a chair um, and play your mother and someone to sit in a chair and play your father and then they just play out the dynamic and you had to see that that their behaviour was between them and not you and, and there were all these other techniques to be able to observe a situation without your emotion and to start to see it and to start to unravel all the emotional triggers and things that you'd attached to the situation. So um, back to the fly on the wall. So what the fly on the wall did, it um, it ab- enabled you to just see what had happened if you weren't part of it and to sort of see, okay, what was, and then you'd go into the chair thing and go, okay, so go and be the father what's the father seeing in that situation? So if my brother did this technique with the pool um, and he stepped inside my dad, what he'd see is my dad going, oh, uh, the kids are hot, the kids are tired and grumpy, Um, what can I do? I'm filling up the pool, so I'm doing that to make the the situation better for the kids, that's right. So, um, okay, one of them seems to be happy. Uh, So the girl, she's, she's sitting in the water even though it's only a foot deep. Uh, she's happy. She's just sitting quietly, right? She's usually happy. Um, the, the boy is really angry. Maybe he's hungry. Maybe he's tired. Um, or maybe he's just hot. So I'll splash him and turn this into a bit of a game to try and cheer him up. So my dad's um, sort of clumsy, well-meaning way when someone's struggling is to try and turn it into a joke. Um, my brother has uh, depression and rage issues and um, is uh, somewhat autistic and uh, on the scale. So my brother doesn't really cope with someone making a joke when he's doing uh, drama and rage. He, it, it just becomes a clash of energy. Um, and my brother, like my mother, has incredibly low DHEA, uh, incredibly low dopamine levels. Um, so he uh, doesn't have endorphins and dopamine and doesn't have a natural ability to smile or laugh. He sees everything um, as very intense and very heavy and he's uh, emotionally uh, a very uh, depressed person and biologically a very depressed person. So he's got, um, you know, nature, whichever it is, nature, nurture. Um, When he's been medically balanced, to have high dopamine levels, he still has the same personality. He just um, he feels different. He but he still is hardwired to be angry. It's really interesting watching um, something that has both a biological and an emotional component, and how it plays out. And if you change one of the factors, um, whether he still chooses to go back the same way. Um, you know, whether he overrides it. And the other extreme of these sort of studies, uh, the guy that Russell Brand talks about, who he's a Buddhist monk and he takes drug addicts and gets them out on the street, um, gets them to find a dealer, 
um, shoot up heroin and then use the power of their mind to override the, the high, the hit. And once they do that, they realize that it's just tricking their mind that they're high, that it's all an illusion. And it has an incredible success rate um, because people start to see that everything's an illusion. Depression, high, drugs, uh, despair, trauma is all an illusion. But usually the neural pathways have been replayed over and over and over again. And so we, we, fall, we follow down the same path and we wear it out, the same path until it's like a highway, until this learned response becomes our natural response and we, we do the same things. So I remember trying to explain this to an ex, that he anything that happened to him, he'd, he'd start screaming at people, you made me angry, you made me angry. And it would be over some made-up thing. So it would be like he'd imagine that something was going to happen and then he'd scream that you made him angry. And I couldn't explain to him that um, since the, the thing that made him angry was an imaginary future thing yet, that he'd made himself angry. So nothing had happened. It hadn't happened yet. It probably would never happen. Um, but he, when he got really, really angry thinking about it, it was actually in his head. So he was actually making himself angry. And I was trying to explain to him that let's say, so it'd be like, I know you're going to leave me. And then he'd get all wound up and start saying, you know, he was going to destroy me because he knew one day I'd leave him. So this is a completely fabricated future event um, and that, he, that made him angry. Right, and I'd say so. I haven't lived, so nothing's happened yet. Um, but you're screaming and raging and angry. But that's your response to everything that you can't control is to get angry. But some people uh, respond to things. Uh, so when some people are triggered, they respond with anger. When some people are triggered, they respond by uh, crawling into a shell. When some people are triggered, they shut down. When some people are triggered, they cry. When some people are triggered, they freeze, right? I couldn't explain to him that he had this trigger response that, and he that's what he'd learned being around his parents who did rage and violence and he'd repeated rage and violence. And I couldn't explain to him that when you when your amygdala, when your primal brain is triggered with adrenaline, you usually go into how you were raised. And um, so adrenaline shuts down blood going to the frontal lobe. So you're not thinking logically. You're not thinking rationally. You are just reacting to what's been programmed into you. And it actually takes uh, – so breathing, distraction, taking time out, actually, uh, you know, run, going for a run – burns off the adrenaline so you can think clearly and then you can choose a response. But um, me trying to logically argue with someone who was screaming in a rage uh, was really a waste of effort. As I learned more about how adrenaline and primal brain worked, I realized that me trying to explain something logical to someone who was screaming and triggered was just a waste of energy. Um, and we see it when, uh, when someone's really, really triggered and they tweet and they are tweeting in a rage and they can't spell. It's because the logical frontal lobe part of their brain isn't working when they have a perceived threat and they fly into a rage. Um, and, you know, when you know more about that person, you go, oh, okay, did they have a violent alcoholic father who threatened them? So when somebody uh, threatens them by making a joke, it triggers their childhood stuff 
of being threatened by a very, very violent alcoholic father who used to beat you up all the way into university. So for us, we think, oh, it's just a joke. Why would you be threatened by it? But for them, the threat is just as, is just as confronting as if they're a tiny child being beaten. So um, if that's your trigger, so whatever the trigger is, and then that's how you learn to respond. And that's why we always say to, to people, um, and we say take a look at your in-laws because that's what you're marrying. And the reason we say take a look at your in-laws is because that's how they've learned to handle problems. So um, on a conscious level, so my dad, when he had uh, business dealings with someone and it didn't work out, my dad would always try and resolve it, would always try and do what's fair, would always try and do the right thing. And so I pride myself on always doing that. However, when somebody did rage or violence or screaming or death threats, my father didn't know how to cope and he would just have no contact with that person. He didn't know how to handle it. He he didn't handle it very well. And sadly, I'm the same. When I have people in my life who, um, which is thankfully not all the time, it's pretty rare, but there are, you know, one in, let's say one in a thousand, about one in a thousand people I encounter tend to be like that. I tend to get them out of my life either in a week or within a few months. Once I get close enough to them to say no to them, once uh, I start to see, usually there's some really obvious red flags. Um, so, um, but I'm like my father, I'm really bad at handling um, screaming rage. Okay, so my dad didn't handle it very well when my mum and my brother went into screaming rage. So um, my brothers, because my dad just shut down and said nothing, my mother took over in that pool splashing, you know, incident. Um, and my mother went into her rage and screaming. So in a similar thing, if anyone says anything my brother doesn't like now, he flies into screaming rage. Now, it's really terrifying when a guy who's six foot three and a black belt flies into a screaming rage and starts threatening everyone. Um, but usually um, he screams and, and burns it off. He usually doesn't uh, turn into physical violence. Um, but it, again, like my mother, screaming, I'm going to kill you, screaming rage, screaming threats, because that's how my mother handles problems. So, and my brother was very close to my mum. And that's how um, he handles problems. That's how they both do. Um, I was the scapegoat. He was the golden child of the abuser. So I, I consider myself very, very lucky because I was the scapegoat. I never, ever tried to um, be like her. I tried to be safe. I tried to walk on eggshells and I tried to please her. But I, um, I could, because I saw the worst of her, um, I never wanted to emulate or become anything like her. So um, I do consider myself very, very lucky that I've gone the other extreme and tried to take the good from my dad. I've also taken on a lot of his bad habits, trusting the wrong people, um, getting burned, playing the rescuer. You know, none of those are healthy either. Uh, so the rescuer is just as unhealthy as the abuser. They're both out of balance. Um and they're both playing the same game. It's really, really hard. A lot of rescuers uh, have a whole sort of self-righteous and you get a lot of uh, society payoff from playing the rescuer. 
But if you can actually see that the rescuer is enabling the abuser, the rescuer is showing the abuser that uh, violence works and that threatening people works, um, you realise that if you, you need to stop playing the game um, because otherwise they'll keep doing it because it keeps working and one day it won't be you, it'll be someone else who may not be as well equipped as you to handle it. So um, as much as we love our social justice warriors, uh, we need to make sure that we never, ever reward abusive behaviour. Um, so anyway, this is um, a little bit of an insight into patterns and uh, triggers. <laughs>